2: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Fiat walks, the automaker abandoning its tie-up plans with Renault, blaming the French government. Step up. President Trump demands more progress with Mexico and warns China about more tariffs too. And remembering our heroes, a tribute to all those who fought for freedom in Normandy, 75 years ago. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again. We will be heading to Normandy in just a few moments time to take a look at those D-Day commemorations. But for now here on First Move, we have been talking a lot this week about pivots, about pirouettes and about central banker action. Of course, investors seem to think that central banks are going to make all the right dance moves. I worry that investors at this moment are a little bit too optimistic that we won't end up with a few stubbed toes. But for now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing as far as U.S. futures are concerned. We are losing a bit of steam here, pointing to a bit of a mixed open, though we have risen 3% or more this week on rate cut hopes, wiping out last week's losses. European stocks in the meantime, our higher, boosted by actions and words from the European Central Bank. They did announce a new round of long-term loans to the banks to try and help stimulate some lending. I believe there will be plenty more calls for uh, further action. But for now, the message is that rock-bottom interest rates will stay in place until at least the middle of next year. You know, they're not alone in waving a white flag. India's central bank cutting rates today. That follows Australia, of course. Yesterday, China also adding over $70 billion of cash to its financial system, one of the largest moves on record, in fact, to try and help steady the economy. Central bankers clearly responding to signs of uh, slowing global growth, but both UBS and Goldman Sachs saying today we need to see a lot more bad data from the United States before the Federal Reserve actually follows through and cuts rates, so uh, be warned. Not the only warning today. President Trump, as I mentioned, threatening Mexico once again, saying he wants to see more progress. Also threatening to raise tariffs on China, too. He tweeted that he's dissatisfied with the progress so far on Mexico. Those talks are resuming today, and we'll talk through in just a few moments' time what that might look like. In the meantime, my Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin set to meet this weekend with the representatives of the People's Bank of China. So we'll watch those talks for clues. Can we hope for signs of greater unity? That's the question. I tell you, there's always hope, especially when you see what's happening in Normandy today. And that's where we're going to start the drivers. In Normandy, France, a moving tribute to veterans who made the ultimate sacrifice to in the fight for freedom. World leaders have spent the day honoring World War II veterans and those who died on the beaches of northern France 75 years ago. U.S. President Donald Trump and his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron attended a service at the American cemetery, paying tribute to the men who fought in that decisive D-Day battle. Melissa Bell is in Normandy for us. Melissa, some powerful scenes, I think, even just looking at the beaches, Gold Beach in particular, as uh, as it was known with tanks, with soldiers commemorating simply what took place at that time. Talk us through it.
3: That's right, Julia. This is what it's all about. It is from these waters and towards these beaches that all those young men so bravely and for so many of them at cost of their lives stormed uh, their way past the German defences, securing in the end the liberation of uh, Europe. And all along these beaches, hundreds of commemorative events have been held uh, there are, according to local authorities, a million people who've come out to take part. Of course, the main event today was at that cemetery. Those extraordinary images of those world leaders getting together to remember their shared history and the sacrifices that have allowed them to build that peace and keep it and ensure that it remained for so long. We heard from the French president who turned at one point very poignantly to speak in English to the American veterans who were there and every dwindling number, of course, year after year. And then we heard from the American president who was remarkably in sync with what his French counterpart had just had. Have a listen.
4: To all of our friends and partners, our cherished alliance was forged in the heat of battle, tested in the trials of war and proven in the blessings of peace. Our bond is unbreakable.
3: The American president also spent a lot of time, Julia, uh, speaking to those veterans, speaking of them and singling out a couple of these extraordinary stories. And they really are exceptional, every one that we've heard of these last few days. He turned to Russell Pickett, whom he'd embraced, the last known survivor of uh, that initial storming of Omaha Beach. Now, as I was saying, this is uh, Gold Beach. This is where the British troops landed, but further along the coast. You get to Omaha Beach, where the Americans landed, known as Bloody Omaha, were so great were the losses of the American troops. And just imagine, Judith for a minute, that that first wave of American soldiers who landed on these beaches, about 90% were killed. Uh, so the ones that survived were few and far between. And this particular veteran, Uh, He was amongst them. Donald Trump paid tribute to him. It's been all about these extraordinary men all now, of course, in their 90s, some in their hundreds. We've seen some very moving ceremonies over the course of the last couple of days, one that was held up at Quarantan, just beyond the beaches in the backcountry there a little bit, one of the crucial strategic positions that the Americans had to parachute in to try and take. It took many days of fighting after the parachutists arrived. They finished off by taking the town with their bayonets. Well, last night, we watched the very last few surviving veterans of the 101st Airborne Division rising for those that could still get up off of their wheelchairs to listen to the Star-Spangled Banner and to remember all of their fallen comrades, Julia.
2: Yeah, I was watching the president's speech live earlier on and my eyes were welling up and I had a frog in my throat. I mean, we we cannot imagine what these individuals went through, but it was so poignant to me, the stories that he was telling about those individuals. So I'm so glad that you point that out because I think this was an incredibly powerful image of, of unity and what was sacrificed in order that we have the freedom we have today. One of the big moments as well was the flyover i just want to show you some of those images and and let you see one of the other aspects of of this commemoration more powerful images Um, melissa i just want to talk about what some of the other leaders said as well i mean theresa may obviously stepping down tomorrow from her role as Prime Minister but even her speech I think was incredibly heartfelt, incredibly powerful. All of these leaders stepping up today and, and making pretty poignant speeches at this moment in time.
3: I think remembering, Julia, everything that unites them, the recent history, the peace that was built in the rubble of Europe after World War II, I think that's been a crucial element. And when you're here on these waters, on boats like this one, the amphibious trucks that allowed the landings to take place, you're reminded of how that common peace was built. It was built through this extraordinary coordinated military operation, the likes of which the world has not seen since, had never seen before, that allowed these many countries to get together in secretly over two years before D-Day. Organize this extraordinary operation logistically, just getting the logistics right, all coordinated along this, uh, this coast, creating artificial ports like the one that was built here just off Gold Beach and having these trucks when the port was destroyed before the end of June 1944, these trucks bringing up all the supplies that were needed for this extraordinary operation that by then was moving into the interior of France and taking back the parts of Europe that were still occupied, Julia. Absolutely. And, you know, I just go to one of the lines
2: that Theresa May said here when she said, you know, it's incredibly moving to be here looking out over beaches where one of the greatest battles for freedom this world has ever known took place. And just to go back to what we saw 75 years ago, that the combined forces, air, land, sea, this operation and how momentous it was, how pivotal it was as a turning point in World War II
3: of course, quite rightly, it remains what binds all of these leaders together. So whatever their divisions politically over the course of the last few years, they come together at moments like this. And of course, this one is particularly significant, Julia, the 75th anniversary, because there simply may not be another big one where there is anyone who was alive at the time who can still take part. So uh, this was the important one to come together at. And whenever they do come together, those divisions that uh, we hear about so often, uh, that that divide them most of the time, suddenly disappear. And uh, we watched Theresa May for her last official event this morning opening, uh, uh, beginning, putting the first brick down with Emmanuel Macron uh, of a Franco-British memorial that they'd planned at their very first meeting. These are the threads uh, that unite these leaders, the leaders of the Western world, and the history uh, that they can continue to build on. And I think it is that poignancy that gets across political lines, that gets across whatever the controversies of the moment are, uh, that are uh, so spectacular to hear. And I think listening to the American president today, uh, that was really what we heard. An American president who Uh, was very much in keeping with the mood of his uh, European counterparts and the other world leaders who gathered today. It was about the veterans, it was about the history, and it was about the peace uh, that continues uh, uh, to prevail, that continues to endure, thanks to that architecture that was created in the wake of World War II. And that's really what those commemorations were about today, reminding uh, the world and perhaps the younger generations even more of all the sacrifices that were made along these beaches 75 years ago today and in the coming days to ensure that we might all be free today, Julia. Absolutely. And
2: actually, I've seen a lot of the coverage as well, suggesting that they've actually never seen President Trump being more presidential than what we've seen over the last couple of days with these commemorations in particular. And to your point about unity, particularly at this moment. What next? Because we are going to see President Trump and uh, Emmanuel Macron, of course, meeting after these meetings before the president then leaves, of course, back to Ireland. What do we expect to be discussed? Because clearly, at this moment in time, lots to discuss, not only what we're seeing in terms of these commemorations.
3: I think it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that bilateral meeting, because, of course, when those doors close and two presidents find themselves together, there is so much that divides them. We know that they're going to talk about Iran. We know that they're going to talk about the trade disputes that divide the United States from Europe. Uh, Again, we've been talking about the relationship between Emmanuel Macron and Donald Trump for uh, the last couple of years for a reason. They are diametrically opposed in their world vision, each sort of standing up to the other as an example of everything uh, that, that separates them, everything that divides them. They've had this interesting rapport that does seem to function on a certain level. And yet the French president has always been very forthright in telling the American president when he disagrees how much progress will be made on the very many issues that divide them. And one of the ones in particular for European leaders are, of course, the trade disputes. That's really something that uh, has caused, put a division between Emmanuel Macron and Donald Trump about a year ago, that bromance we talked so much about. Turn sour, partly because the European Union objected to the trade dispute uh, uh, and and what uh, the American president was threatening uh, to do to European imports to the United States. So that will be at the heart of the discussion. Emmanuel Macron has always said that he feels uh, free to speak his mind to the American president. We'll have to see what comes out uh, of that. But of course, uh, the mood today here and apart from that bilateral meeting, the meat of that the mood of that commemorative event, the mood at these many hundreds of commemorative events that have taken place uh, all over today have really been of unity. The number of nationalities that have turned up here, they're Dutch, they're French, they're English, they're American, they're Canadian. They've come an awful long way uh, to remind each other and to remind the younger generations who've been brought along here today uh, of everything uh, that that, that unites us and of everything more profoundly perhaps in the immediate political disputes uh, that unites us. It's been quite an extraordinary uh, day here at the Normandy beaches, Julia.
2: Yes, even the handshakes between the two presidents were um, lacking the uh, competitiveness that we've seen in the past. Uh, Melissa, I just want to ask as well, if we've got those images again of of the beaches... Yes, yes. Um, I just want to bring back, uh, go back to what we were saying at the start of this conversation, some of those images of of Gold Beach, which was so pivotal in Operation Overlord 75 years ago, and and the boats that we can see and some of the tanks that we can see on the beaches. Melissa, I believe that you actually went aboard one of the boats. Tell me what you
3: were doing there uh, earlier today, too. You can see now. I'm just going to show you the view here of Gold Beach. So this is where the British had landed. Now the tide is right up, but this morning it was all the way down, and it's quite a large beach when the when the uh, when the tide is low. And there was this extraordinary spectacle, Julia. 250 vehicles had gathered. The people were in costume. They were in uniform, an extraordinary atmosphere. They had lined up before dawn to mark this extraordinary moment. And they kept saying, it is about the history. It is about the sacrifices we can never forget. And that is why we have to keep coming back here every year and reenacting as much as we can uh, what's gone on. You can see one of the amphibious trucks there on the beach, just like the one we're sitting on now. They were also out in full force today. And you really get a sense when you're out here on the water, especially earlier on when the tide was a little lower of What it must have been like to come towards these shores on these vehicles. Imagine, we now know that so much of the preparedness had gone wrong. The bombardments of the enemy positions that should have taken place before these young men landed simply hadn't taken out as much of the German uh, firepower as they'd hoped. The young men came up and in particular in the case of Omaha uh, went straight to their deaths wave after wave after wave before the first uh, penetration beyond enemy lines was able to take place and uh, the operation was able uh, to be announced a success and to continue behind. There was a point even Julia when they had considered abandoning the operation at Omaha Beach so disastrous was the turn that it had taken. So you can imagine the chaos of that morning you can imagine in the darkness these young men trying to make their way to these beaches. Uh, The others, of course, parachuted. We've been hearing a lot about the 101st Airborne Division, Further back, uh, the parachutists trapped, isolated, being shot at as they landed. I mean, incredible stories of bravery, incredible stories of what would have seemed at first like an incredibly chaotic and dangerous operation. Ultimately, of course, uh, we know that it's secured, uh, the victory that it secured and, and the peace uh, that has followed. And that is why so many people have turned up to pay their respects to the very few men who continue to represent that extraordinary generation to him. Absolutely.
2: Uh, make their hair on my arms stand up. We remember and will continue to do so. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that. And we will continue to cover the commemorations over in Normandy throughout programming today on CNN. So uh, stay with us for that. For now, I'm going to move on and talk about Fiat Chrysler, U-turning on its mega merger with Renault, blaming Renault's biggest shareholder, the French government, in fact. Shares in Renault, as you can see, down in Europe today. Anna Stewart has the story for us. Anna, when this story broke and this potential tie-up was announced, my instant response was the governments here are going to have a problem. And (laughs) that's exactly what it seems. What do we know? Definitely the finger being pointed at the French government
5: here by Fiat. In their statement in which they pulled out of the merger, they said it's become clear that the political conditions that currently exist in France just don't exist for this combination to be a success. And it doesn't really, as you say, come as much of a surprise, at least that there were going to be some problems to work through. The French government is a big stakeholder in Renault, the biggest, with 15% of shares we knew there were some problems that they'd raised, but we thought they could be ironed out. For instance, the French government wanted to ensure that jobs and plants in France would be safe. They wanted, even though their stake would have been reduced to 7.5%, they wanted to make sure they had a seat in the board and they wanted to make sure they had veto control over executives. There were rumors they wanted to have operational headquarters in France. And of course, there's this issue over the Nissan-Renault alliance. We know that the French government holds great value in Nissan, and Nissan were lukewarm at best. Nissan couldn't have vetoed this merger, but they weren't really going for it. They weren't really getting out there and supporting it, and there were concerns that That alliance is already under strain with Carlos Ghosn, the former chairman, being arrested, and this could have pushed it even further. However, I would say that all those problems, none of them were insurmountable this time yesterday. We thought perhaps this would get extended, talks would continue, but Fiat pulled the plug and it's taken us all, myself included, by surprise. Julia?
2: Yeah, we'll see if it's salvageable. I feel like everyone's a loser here. €5 billion worth of synergies up in smoke, and of course the French government looks anti-business too we'll see Anna Stewart great work thank you so much for that all right we're going to take a quick break here on first move but when we come back from pomp and pageantry to talking trade we'll take a look at what's next for President Trump after the state visit in Britain and of course those D-Day commemorations in Normandy and the electric roads trip find out what it takes to drive a Tesla long-range that's coming up stay with CNN Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where we're seeing a pretty modest start for U.S. markets this morning. Investors perhaps on pause after two days of incredibly strong gains. We've also had a message from the European Central Bank this morning, too. They are planning to keep rates at rock-bottom levels until at least the middle of next year, too. So all central banks coordinating here to say, look, if there is a broader slowdown, we will provide support here. The president also making comments on trade, saying that he'll make a decision on further Chinese tariffs at the G20 meeting this month. We are also seeing comments coming from President Trump and Emmanuel Macron, a meeting at this moment. If we get more, we will take you to that. But for now, let me give you a look at what's going on in the bond markets. U.S. 10-year yields are under a bit of pressure this morning, hovering around that 2.1%. Still above this week's lows, though. And I'll give you a quick look at the oil market, too. Oil Pushing into bear market territory yesterday, so down some 20% from its most recent highs on a higher inventory bill, too. Clearly a lot going on. Let's talk it through. Joining me now Alicia Levine. She's Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. There's a lot going on. What do you make of it right now? What are you telling clients?
6: So we're telling clients right now that we actually see a range-bound market because we think there's um, a Fed put and actually a trade put. But somewhere around the 2650 2700 range because it looks like the, the Fed is more likely to cut as the next move, move and raise. And on top of that, it's very likely we're going to have some sort of announcement that the, the meetings will commence with China again. So people want to be in the market for that, and that's creating a bit of a floor. And then we mm-hmm. kind of see a ceiling just because the, great, the growth numbers are, are coming in because of the trade tensions, because of the confidence in the investment problem. And so for that, we see a bit of a ceiling.
2: What if we don't see a resolution on trade?
6: And what happens if,
2: on Monday, if we look at the immediate short term, we see 5% tariffs on, on Mexican imports? Is that sort of in the price at this stage, given what we've seen? And in light of what you've said, the Federal Reserve perhaps indicating that look, we'll cut rates in a worst-case scenario here.
6: So I think we, I think investors should expect that that five percent tariffs goes on right. on Monday. It seemed very clear that the, at least the the initial five percent was going to go on. The administration thinks that tariffs give them a stronger bargaining position. Let's leverage and it's something to take away as part of a negotiation. So that should go on. I don't think the market's fully pricing in the full twenty five percent on the next three hundred and twenty five billion on China, nor is it pricing in any possible action against Europe. So that's the that's the risk here that you know that the trade action goes on longer and that the markets haven't priced it in. And very interestingly, earnings have not come down for, right. for 2019. And that's your risk. Because you're really looking at a two to four percent risk on the earnings side just through the last half of the year. Why have analysts not done that? Why have analysts not looked at this and gone, okay. It's supposition at this stage, but why haven't
2: they? Are they just waiting for, for further indication, perhaps even the G20 meeting, as the president
6: alluded to here? Because for me, that's quite surprising. Julia, I think you're right. I think the analysts are waiting for what happens at the G20. So the finance ministers are meeting this weekend. Yes. So I'm sure at that point, there'll be some announcement that she and Trump will meet at the G20. will be. So then negotiations will restart, because right now, neither side is negotiating. So we're not negotiating. I think analysts are waiting to hear what happens at the G20. We think the best case, the the base case scenario is that if there's a deal, it doesn't happen until the end of the year.
2: Yeah, so it could be a really long time to wait for a resolution here. You know, if I look at what the the global economic outlook is, you know, we've had all sorts of warnings, the World Bank lowering their estimates here. And then I look at the oil market and we're back in bear market territory and I go, there's really mixed signals between the commodities markets, the bond markets here and still what I see in equities.
6: How do you account for that confusion? Look, you know, my years doing this, when the bond market and the equity market disagree, the bond market tends to have a better handle on things. And so we do think there's some asymmetric risk to the downside. But for the the next few months, we see a a range-bound market here, only because we do think there will be some attempt to move things forward with China. If that doesn't happen, then you've got all downside.
2: Yeah. And all eyes then on j Powell riding to the rescue.
6: <laughs> fantastic to <laughs> right. have you on. And, and, you know, the market wants this cut by July. Yeah. And if it doesn't get the cut in July, that's your other risk. Welcome to another tantrum. Yes. Alicia, fantastic to have
2: you on. As Great Roy. to see you, Julia. to have in there, chief strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. All right. We're counting down to the market open this morning. Plenty more to come from First Move. And of course, we'll head back to Normandy too. Stay with us. Thursday here at the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back to the show. We're expecting a pretty flattish open for U.S. markets this morning following two strong days of gains, of course. Stock futures have been a pretty high or much higher than that we're seeing right now a few hours ago, but we've lost some ground into the open here. Watch the Fed speak. We've got Fed New York Fed Chief John Williams speaking this afternoon, particularly in light of the fact that analysts like UBS and Goldman Sachs have said today, look, don't count on the Federal Reserve cutting rates anytime soon, literally echoing what Alicia Levine was just telling us a few moments ago. Also tomorrow, the U.S. jobs report could also be key in light of the ADP private sector jobs growth numbers, the weaker growth numbers that we saw earlier this week too. All right, let me walk you through some of the individual movers, our global movers on first move this morning. Uber in focus. It rallied more than 5% on Wednesday. It's now trading above its $45 IPO price for the first time ever. Worth noting, a number of Wall Street firms commenting positively about Uber this week, which have allowed it, I think, to uh, pick up some steam here. Stitch Fix, also in focus, the online fashion company, posting a surprise profit of 7 cents a share. Analysts were expecting a loss. Revenues also came in strong and they provided positive guidance too. Home under pressure, home decor at Superstore missing earnings expectations. They also offered weak guidance, perhaps the key here. They blamed bad weather in many parts of the United States. Michael's companies also again under pressure, the arts and crafts retailer trading now near record lows. The Q1 sales missed expectations, and again another company here lowering their profit guidance retailer here feeling the heat, I think, from both Walmart and Amazon. Some pretty stiff competition. All right, let's set the markets aside now because I do want to return to the commemorative events taking place as we speak in Normandy, France. It was exactly 75 years ago today, June 6, that the tide of World War II was turned. It's best remembered now as D-Day when wave after wave of Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy, France, under heavy German gunfire. Today. At a time when the transatlantic alliance is under some considerable strain, the U.S. and French presidents met in Normandy to remember their cooperation and their shared losses. A short time ago, they honoured veterans and those who died at a U.S. military cemetery overlooking Omaha Beach. This is where over 9,000 Americans were laid to rest. Each of the leaders spoke of the sacrifices of two million soldiers who fought in Normandy. And the bond the countries share.
7: La France n'oublie.
1: Les two millions de soldats, France has not forgotten the two million soldiers who, in the end of the longest day, would continue fighting for weeks and went through the hell of combat in Normandy countryside..
4: To all of our friends and partners, our cherished alliance was forged, in the heat of battle, tested in the trials of war and proven in the blessings of peace. Our bond is unbreakable.
2: Joining us now is uh, Tina Fordham, Chief Global Political Analyst at City. Tina, I do want to talk more broadly about what we're seeing and, and the future here, but I also want to mark what we're seeing right now in Normandy. And As I pointed out there, a moment of huge unity among quite significant amount of disunity
8: outside of this moment. Yes, it's very powerful, and uh, you can't help but be moved by these incredible scenes. And if you've spent any time in France, you know how seriously uh, they take commemorating the memory of the war dead and the, the way that the World War II cemeteries are maintained. Um, so uh, it, it is a real focal point for the U.S.-European relationship uh, at a time when, frankly, uh, America's European allies haven't been so sure that President Trump is, is very committed to it.
2: Absolutely. I want to move on and talk about some of the comments that the president made over there, particularly about China. He said, look, if we don't get progress or at least a positive breakthrough in talks with China." when they meet President Xi and President Trump at the G20, then he'll then make a decision on on more tariffs, on the additional $325 billion worth of goods. What's your base case here with regards to U.S. and China?
8: Well, Julia, we've talked about this a number of times in the past, and and I've consistently thought this year that uh, markets have really gotten too far ahead of the politics, hence the surprise reaction. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and then another surprise after the the Mexico comments. Um, Market participants have tended to see these kinds of statements from President Trump uh, as a bluff, as a negotiating tactic. Uh, What I say is that they are a negotiating tactic, for sure. It's increasing the pressure. Uh, But we should take him at his word. He he does mean to, to go further with sanctions and believes that he has the space to do so. Uh, I think another thing that's changed, by the way, is the extent to which the president may be keeping as close an eye on US equity markets as he has right. in the past. The word is that he's being advised um, not to focus so much on the day-to-day gyrations and to keep his eye on the prize, which is, of course, uh, big concessions from, from China.
2: You know, it's interestingly, politically here in the United States has been a very different response to the pressure that the president has placed on China versus what we're seeing right now with Mexico and and using tariffs on the trading relationship to try and tackle something like immigration. I don't think anybody believes that immigration isn't something to be tackled here. But what's your base case as far as Mexican tariffs are concerned? Because the pressure coming, particularly from the Republicans on, on Trump. At this moment, is is very different.
8: Well, it, it, I think it's really important to understand that um, this president who came to power on the on the back of emphasizing that he wasn't going to follow. You know, business as usual that he was prepared to break glass has very much done so in this case when it comes to the Mexico tariffs, whereby immigration has been used as a pretext. Um, that is very much outside of the usual protocol. It's safe to say it, it, it's blindsided Mexico. Uh, but the difference between, I think, the um, discussions with both Canada and Mexico and uh, and Washington uh, vis-a-vis China is that Both of those countries have uh, rather been more willing to scramble to and have, I think, believe that they have less leverage in the negotiations. For China, I think China is uh, very clearly signaling it's not willing to substantially undermine its objectives, especially when they come to technology and where it intersects with national security. So quite different kind of power dynamic.
2: It all makes me think we're still too complacent about the prospects of this. Tina Fordham, fantastic to get you on First Move, as always. So, Tina Fordham, the chief global political analyst at City, joining us there. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, we've heard of startups listing on the stock exchange. But what about when the stock exchange itself is a startup? My conversation with the CEO of a new innovative stock exchange after this. Welcome back to First Move. There's good news and there's bad news. U.S. President Trump says talks with Mexico are progressing, just not fast enough. He's still threatening that tariffs could hit on Monday. In a tweet late Wednesday, the president said the higher tariffs go, the higher the number of companies that will move back to the United States. Paula Newton is in Mexico City for us once again. The talks, of course, continuing again. Do we know what the United States is asking for specifically here, Paula? And do we know what the Mexicans are offering
7: Uh, This is the big question, isn't it? A couple things I can point out to you. One is, you know, what's going to happen in the short term and what is going to happen in the long term. In the long term, what Mexico wants is more financial aid, both for what they do on that southern border and also what is done in those central American countries, countries like Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, trying to come up with an economic solution so that these people do not want to or have to go flow through Mexico up to the United States. What's more important here though in the day ahead will be what happens in the short term and that is a problem because the United States essentially wants Mexico to harden up that southern border whether with troops or any any infrastructure something that Mexico really would be at pains to do both financially and politically and that is the big problem. There's also a lot of international law at work here Julia I know you know in terms of trying to claim asylum in the United States the the United States wants to turn back all those Central American migrants and leave in Mexico. They believe that they want Mexico to sign up to what's called a third-party safe country agreement, and that means they would be turned back at the United States and remain in Mexico. Again, something that is a tall order for Mexico. I can tell you that President López Obrador just spoke a few moments ago saying that he indeed is optimistic, but then leaving the door open to retaliation that he says he will not discuss. Uh, Julia, as this is a business show, let's backtrack, right? Big picture. Also, have to tell you that Fitch and Moody's not so keen on uh, Mexico's credit rating. Uh, the P- Mexican peso, while it has affirmed up in the last few hours, is taking more hits. Those 5% tariffs may go into place on Monday, but that Mexican peso may absorb some of the shock of that. Right. Uh, the Mexican government, though, saying they're still optimistic.
2: Yeah. I think it's likely then that the tariffs hit the question is what can they do 30 days in the following 30 days to prevent a further rise Paula Newton thank you so much for that update there all right let's move on first there was the New York Stock Exchange then the Nasdaq and now the LTSE which stands for Long Term Stock Exchange the SEC last month officially approved the LTSE's position as the 14th listed exchange here in the United States It's seeking to make more focus on the long-term easier for the next generation of public companies. The LTSC is now working to get regulatory approval for listing standards like long-term voting rights, executive compensation, disclosure and shifting governance. I spoke with the company's CEO and asked him what he thinks will draw companies to his alternative exchange. Listen in.
4: We have nothing against the legacy exchanges. Um, They have played an important role in the economy for a long time. And legacy companies need a place to list. So Philip Morris has to be listed somewhere. We don't, we're not opposed to the legacy exchanges. We don't even really view them as competitors. We encourage and allow companies to dual list if they'd like to have an NYSE listing as well as LTSE. Our rules are compatible with that. And if you look at what this next generation of companies wants, they would like a way to show their investors, to pledge to their investors and to all their stakeholders that they're serious about building products that are good for their customers and good for the world. So that's actually a very simple idea, and it's something this next generation of founders is really hungry for. So I, I've built you know deep, long-term relationships with a lot of these business leaders, so I know them well personally. And it's not so much about their relationship with me, it's that we've been able to build a brand and a company and a value proposition and and standards that really resonates with their values. So compared to the incumbent exchanges, we have a different philosophy, a different business model where the companies and their long-term investors, they are the customers of LTSE, not traders. And we have nothing against stock trading. Stock trading is obviously a very important part. But stock traders are extremely well served as customers by a whole range of financial services companies. We'd like there to be at least one whose primary purpose is to serve long-term companies and their investors.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is an increasing focus on ESG investing and particularly for younger investors here, millennials, something that's very much focused on right now. If I take Tesla as an example, it has a huge weighting in some of these funds simply because of the climate focus, the electric cars. And yet you look at the share price volatility and, and the behavior at times of the CEO and it, it sort of raises eyebrows. Would that kind of company, with those kind of metrics, but a CEO that can create waves, <laughs> to, to put it politely, be welcome on the, the LTSE?
4: Well, I, I shouldn't speak about any specific CEO or company, <laughs> but, it's but an certainly, question. C- Yeah, it's certainly if you look at the next generation of, of employees, you think about younger employees who, who, who interact with these companies as customers, as shareholders, uh, as the critical knowledge workers that make these companies go. You see the rise of employee activism, like the values of that next generation are very strong and they don't want to invest in, work for or buy products from an old fashioned company. So if we're going to have a capitalism 2.0, if we're going to actually redeem the system in the light of the challenges that it faces, it's going to need a stock exchange.
2: The truth is fewer and fewer companies are even going public. There were just 190 IPOs in the United States in 2018, half the number from 20 years ago. Many firms have been staying private longer, which means ordinary stock investors never actually get the chance to benefit from an increase in the company's valuation. Reese told me he hopes his stock exchange can change that.
4: There's no question to me that part of the backlash that we're seeing is the the people's really deep sense that they're being left out of something valuable. And the people who are upset about that are right. They legally cannot invest in the highest growth part of our economy. And I don't think that's right. So somebody has to figure out a way to get those companies to go public again. I mean, it was not that long ago. Amazon went public after three years of operations. So you could have bought the IPO of Amazon, and if you really had the courage, you could have held it this whole time. Uh, One of our investors is the founder of AOL, Steve Case, and he told me a story once that really stuck with me. He said, even to this day, people still come up to him on the street sometimes and thank him for putting their kids through college because they bought into the AOL IPO and they were able to hold it through that crazy run up uh, in the 90s. So the, the broad public was able to profit directly from this innovation and disruption. And given that our whole society is affected by the products these companies make, we have to allow everybody to benefit from the prosperity they generate.
2: When he first came up with the idea, he actually wanted someone else to launch it. But when he pitched it to people, he said, They simply laughed at him. I asked him whether that was what prompted him to go it alone and do it himself.
4: I understand that skepticism. I didn't mind being laughed at. I'm used to it. But to me, the the kind of defining characteristic of an entrepreneur, it's actually people think entrepreneurs are great risk takers and that they, they want to take crazy risks. But that's actually not true. As an entrepreneur, when you have a vision, when you see that something must be fixed, Uh, it actually feels like the least risky thing you can do because somebody's got to do it or these problems are going to persist forever. So to me, it felt like just what I had to do. And look, it might have turned out to be impossible, like everybody said. It might have turned out to be a bad idea, like people said. But the more I learned about how the system actually works, the more I realized that stock exchanges were not handed down on stone tablets. They're built by human beings. And so we can build new ones.
2: He actually came up with the idea for LTSE almost 10 years ago and said that there's nothing quite like speaking an idea out loud for the first time and then seeing it later become a reality. Interesting thing to watch. All right, coming up, 600 kilometers on a single charge. CNN takes a long-range Tesla for a spin. We'll be back with all the details. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief and news just in. Google says it's agreed to buy the big data analytics firm Looker in a deal worth $2.6 billion. It says the agreement builds on an existing partnership where the two firms share more than 350 customers, including the likes of BuzzFeed and Yahoo. Looker will join Google Cloud. Walmart CEO says America's minimum wage is too low at the retailer's annual shareholder meeting Wednesday. Doug McMillan said $7.25 an hour is simply not enough and called on Congress to act. U.S. presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders also attended that meeting and pressed Walmart to raise its pay. Tesla is launching a long-range version of its sedan that can travel 600 kilometers on a single charge. CNN's Peter Valdez de Pina was one of the first journalists to get behind the wheel on a road trip down the U.S. East Coast. How exciting. Peter, fantastic to have you with us. What was it like to drive?
1: Uh, Surprisingly nice to drive. Well, the Model S is just basically, I have to say, a very good car to drive and I used autopilot a lot of the way down here, Uh, it was a very enjoyable drive, maybe with a little bit less flexibility since I had to stop at Tesla chargers along the way than I might have had in a gasoline car, but on the other hand a lot less noise um, and I only had to stop three times the whole way down here.
2: Wow, how much of the time did you use on autopilot and did you keep your hands on the wheel Peter?
1: absolutely i kept my hands on the wheel and my eyes on the road it's very important to remember this is not a self-driving car uh, so i did keep my hands on the wheel and i actually used autopilot and or navigate on autopilot the more advanced feature pretty much the whole way um, and actually it was it was quite helpful and i i felt quite safe with it but i felt safe with it again as long as i kept my hands on the wheel and my eyes on the road absolutely a second
2: reiteration of the warning there peter thank you um, 600 kilometers though how long did that take and the critical point here is a single charge because this feels like a real game changer here
1: it's quite good to be honest with you though i think even more important is the advancement this tesla's made in the software in the car for predicting so when I put in a route let's say from New York City to Richmond which was my first day or from Richmond to Atlanta on my second day it actually built into the route charging stops along the way roughly 25 to 40 minutes each time to stop and charge the battery to about 80 percent so that I could keep going. I think that made an even bigger difference.
2: Fantastic. Peter Valdez de Pina great job, very exciting and we will continue this conversation with the, on the Express and, of course, at QMB later on this evening. Thank you very much for that. All right, that just about wraps up the show. Let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for markets. We'd uh, lost a bit of steam versus the rally that we've seen for the last two days. As you can see, tilting to the downside here for the Nasdaq, so we'll be watching that too. But for now, I, uh, I want to wrap up the show. You've been watching First Move, as always, and make your first move today a look at some of these images of the commemorations, of course going on right now in Normandy.